and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. I am finally back from my uh, wandering the earth like Kane travels this summer, and uh, it's good to be getting back to the 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 what this podcast was meant to be, which is uh, deep, exceedingly nerdy dives on important pressing issues of the day. Um, I should say up front, this is brought to you by the Dispatch. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all. Uh, good things. And today's sponsor is Liquid IV. More about them in a little bit. Okay. One of our most popular uh, return guests, um, uh, he's basically put on this earth to uh, drink wine and know things, and he's all out of wine, um, is my AEI colleague, uh, Ken Pollock, a uh, resident scholar or some sort of scholar, a guy who thinks about things, sits on a rock with his chin on his hand. Um, at AI, uh, and an expert on all things Middle Eastern and some other things as well. And he's got a great explainer piece, um, more than an explainer, a cautionary tale piece in the current edition of Foreign Policy about the UAE deal. And since everybody's caught up in politics and, um, and, uh, you know, helter-skelter on the streets, um, uh, we thought we would return to the tradition of remnant counter-programming and do something of substance. And so we're delighted to have Ken. Uh, Ken, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks so much, Jonah. Great to be back. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be nice if we could actually get into our offices at AI. Um, <laughs> That's uh, true, but it, it is nice that technology has allowed us to do this uh, despite the fact uh, yeah, that we can't get into our offices. I got to say, it's starting, one of the things I find dismaying is it's starting to feel normal to do it this way. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be hard for us to all go back to our offices when we have to. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. Fortunately, I was very rarely actually physically at my desk. I was usually <laughs> on the roof smoking cigars. So uh, I can transition back to that pretty easily. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, Ken, um, we're going to get to sort of your your interesting historical perspective on this UAE deal um, between Israel and the UAE um, in a minute. But why don't you, just for the sake of listeners who, who I think can be utterly forgiven for letting this sort of zip by, because so many things have been zipping by, why don't you just sort of explain what exactly happened and... Um, uh, and why it happened, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a very big announcement that the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, one of our Gulf allies, uh, has agreed to normalize ties with Israel, recognize the state of Israel, begin a, a formal and open trade relationship. Uh, and in fact, we had the first commercial flight from Israel to Abu Dhabi the other day. Uh, it was an El Al flight, uh, and you know, some important Americans were actually on board that flight uh, to kind of commemorate this. And it's, it is a big deal, and I don't want to say otherwise, and it is an important and a positive development because it is another Arab country, in effect, putting to rest 
the Arab-Israeli conflict, right, which has been one of the biggest problems in the Middle East for 90 years. Uh, we had the peace deal with Israel, uh, sorry, with, with Israel and Egypt uh, in 1979. That was the first Arab country to make peace with Israel in 1994. The Jordanians made peace with Israel. Since then, we've had nothing. We've had bupkis. And it's a big deal because over the last 20 years, a lot of Arab countries had started to very privately, covertly make overtures to the Israelis, countries in North Africa, countries in the Gulf, saying, in effect, you know, we'd like to have a better relationship with you. We're not looking to fight with you. What is it possible to do? But in every case... If I can interject one second, what was the the sort of the generic primary motivation for those countries to do it? Was it a backdoor thing to get along with America? Was it that Israel has better access to first world markets and trade and technology? I mean, just what, what, what drives a North African country to want to do that? Sure. Well, initially, and again, this starts more or less in the 90s when there is an active peace process going between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, the Syrians, instead of the Jordanians. Uh, it's all those reasons, right? So initially, it is want to be on the good side of the Americans and the Americans want this to happen. Israel is an economic powerhouse, and it'd be nice to, to get some of that, um, and a technological powerhouse, right? This is the startup nation. That would certainly be a useful thing to have. Um, be great to have some of their trade. All of that stuff is out there. In addition, there is just a sense of, you know, this conflict has been a constant burden in a lot of different ways. You know, Obviously, there were some Arab countries, the Syrians in particular, uh, and Nasser in his day, right? They made a lot of hay off of it. They used to use the Israeli threat to justify a lot of what they did. By the 90s, that's kind of going by the wayside. But because it is that kind of disparate grab bag of reasons, it's not a huge incentive for these countries. It's all very small ball kind of stuff. And of course, they're all always looking over their shoulders. The government's always looking over their shoulders at their people and worried that if their people find out about this stuff going on, they'll get angry, there'll be demonstrations, potentially a revolution against the government because the people remain so harshly anti-Israel and quite frankly, anti-Semitic. What really changes though in the last... 10, 15 years is the growth of the threat from Iran, right? That's what really is driving this. And it's one of the the big things I've made, the point that I made in my piece is that, you know, we need to recognize that what is really bringing the moderate Arab states, uh, and specifically in this case, the United Arab Emirates, into this alignment with Israel is their mutual fear of Iran and their mutual fear that the United States isn't going to be there to protect them from Iran, right? And let's understand, that's really the the first choice of all the Arab states. Uh, They're all afraid of Iran, particularly the states in the Gulf who live nearby Iran, but they've always wanted the U.S. to be their protector. Right. Iran is much bigger than they are. They have greater capabilities in many ways. And they've, li- they've been very comfortable with the U.S. as their protector, going back to the Carter Doctrine. Right, 1980, Jimmy Carter announces the U.S. will use force to prevent a third party, an outside power, from interfering with Gulf oil flows. Ronald Reagan extends that, what I call the Reagan corollary to the Carter Doctrine. Reagan says, we will defend Gulf oil against any threats 
internal to the Gulf or external from it, right? And that's really the basis of the U.S. alliance with the Gulf states, and it's really the basis of their security. And what they've seen really over the last 10 or 12 years with both Obama and Trump is the U.S. disengaging from the region and no longer willing to defend them against the Iranians. And you know, these are, you know, we can talk more about this if you want, but these are not very capable countries. Uh, interestingly, the Emirates are by far the most capable of them. But these are not countries that have the military capacity to brawl with the Iranians. They need help. And as the U.S. pulled back, and it's just been terrifying for them, they've done all kinds of crazy and stupid things in response to the American disengagement. But one of the things that they have been doing is looking and saying, well, hey, if we can't have the Americans, if we can't have the greatest Western military power defend us against the Iranians, let's get the Israelis, right? Mm -hmm. They're not the Americans, but they're pretty good. They live close by. They're not going anywhere. And they're just as afraid of the Iranians as we are. So, um, so the actual deal is just a normalizing of relations, right? There's nothing, is, 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 do we know, is there a explicit mutual defense aspect to this or is it just sort of implied i mean where is the i mean it, presumably if that's if that's your explanation for why uae is doing this then then there has to be some of that sort of in the mix right absolutely and it's already going on right where uh again you know it's all very very covert but for years now it is clear that the Israelis have been working covertly with a number of the Gulf states against Iran. Right? Mm -hmm. Their intelligence services work very actively together. And you know, the truth is, we don't know exactly who was responsible for things like you know, all this stuff blowing up in Iran. Right, you know, especially started again recently. A whole bunch of stuff related to Iran's weapons of mass destruction programs are just blowing up. We've had riots in some of the Arab cities in Iran, right? And it's clearly some mixture of the Israelis and the Ar Gulf Arab states. We may be in there as well, and whether they're just simply doing it in parallel or doing it together, providing, we don't know. But again, there's a lot of intelligence cooperation going on. And I think that it is clear that the, the Gulf states are hopeful that, well, I'll put it this way, it may be that they hope that if the Iranians hit them, the Israelis would strike back. That's going to be tough. Uh, even logistically, it'd be tough for the Israelis to do. There's no question that the Arab states are hoping that the Iranians will think twice about hitting them again mm -hmm. if the Iranians believe that the Israelis might retaliate for them. Right, in part because I presume if the Israelis get involved, there is this ancillary fear that that is the one country that if it gets involved in a mess, that America might get involved too. So it's sort of a one Absolutely. two Right, exactly. So it's it's not just Israel's greater military capabilities; it's also greater Israel's greater ties to the United States. Right. Okay. So, uh, with the general proviso or stipulation that, uh, just as a rule of American politics, right or wrong, uh, incumbent presidents get to take credit for things uh, 
that happen on their watch, whether or not they were deeply involved in it. I am not looking to, since people think that I'm always trying to shortchange President Trump, I am not trying to do that. I just as a matter of curiosity, how much of this was the Trump administration's doing? How much did it facilitate? Um, is is Jared Kushner really the T.E. Lawrence of the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, look, certainly the Trump administration contributed to it. They certainly facilitated it. They certainly encouraged it. They're not the first administration to have tried to do all of those different things. But again, at the end of the day, this was really done by the Emiratis who wanted to do this, right? And there's uh, there's another piece to it that we should mention, of course, which is that, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel had been talking very loudly about annexing much of the West Bank, right? And part of the deal was that in return for this recognition, the Israelis would agree not to annex any more of the West Bank, right? And that's a a nice win for the UAE, and they get to tout that to the rest of the world, right? And, And that was also part of all of this going on. As I said, the Trump administration did play a role in encouraging it and facilitating it, but this was really about the UAE wanting to be able to say to the Arab world, you know, we turned off Israel's annexation, wanting to have a deeper, more open relationship with Israel, both to deter the Iranians and get some additional help against the Iranians. It is also, as you point out, the UAE wanting to further ingratiate itself with the United States and specifically with the Trump administration. But you know, if I had to say what was the most important contribution of the Trump administration to this agreement, it would be the incredibly negative one of President Trump failing to respond when the Iranians mounted a series of blatant attacks against Saudi and Emirati oil exports in 2019, right? This was shocking and appalling to their leadership that the Iranians would mount these brazen attacks, including the attack in September of 2019, where the Iranians attacked Abcake. Abcake is this massive oil processing plant in Saudi Arabia, which I like to describe, and I think it's a a very accurate description, it is the beating heart of the global economy. Mm -hmm. If you shut down Abcake, you are basically going to bring the the global economy to a grinding halt. The Iranians mounted a brilliant drone attack on Abcake, and again, the U.S. did nothing. And that was absolutely terrifying to the Saudis and the Emiratis, who saw the United States walking away from their defense. That is the most important thing that drove the Emiratis into the arms of the Israelis. And just a a final point on that, it's one of the the things I think people are missing about about this deal, right? Lots of people are talking about how wonderful it is. This is great that Israel is being recognized by another Arab state. Maybe others will join in. I think there's a real prospect that some may, and that it is putting to bed this you know, 90-year-old conflict between Israelis and Arabs that has plagued the Middle East, all of which is good. But what they're missing is the, the underlying geostrategic forces that are pushing this alliance, that pushed the Emirates, right? And these are very dangerous forces. The rise of Iran, 
the sense of abandonment by the United States. That's what's really driving this. And so what I pointed out in the piece is that, you know, given those, those deeper forces, we shouldn't necessarily see this as a recipe or a, an agreement that is going to bring greater peace to the region. It's more likely to bring greater conflict to the region. Um, and I want to get to that in a second, and particularly because I, I'm a sucker for historical analogies that don't involve Vietnam or, <laughs> uh, or Neville Chamberlain. Um, you know, I mean, it's like my dad always used to say, uh, why can't we say shuffling deck chairs in the Lusitania, right? I mean, like, why do we always have to go to the same historical analogies for everything? So I, I like that you went with a new one. But uh, just to push back a little bit and play devil's advocate, yeah. I, I certainly take your point. And I probably agree with it. I'm sure I agree with it uh, about Trump's failure to respond to these things. But a certain part of sort of MAGA crowd, but also a certain part of the sort of Obama crowd would say, look, this is sort of the point. This is not a bug. This is a feature for for decades. We keep interceding. We're the policemen in the region. And um, and the it, it gives the the government's. Um, or the regimes in in the or in the region, an excuse not to take their own self defense seriously, not to take the facts on the ground seriously, and by us holding back, this forces uh, you know a, uh, a a maturity on some of these countries that has been lacking for a very long time because they they now have to be self reliant in a way um, that they haven't been, and so. What would you say to that? I mean, it seems to me that that would be a, at least in the debate, a pretty powerful argument for an audience. Sure. So this is the moral hazard argument. And you're absolutely right. And the Obama administration deployed the moral hazard argument, uh, you know, very strenuously at the beginning of his term of office. First point I'll make is you will note that he stopped using it by the mm -hmm. time he left office, right? By the time he gives the Jeffrey Goldberg uh, interview in the Atlantic, he's no longer making the moral hazard argument. And the reason is because it has been tested and found wanting. Mm -hmm. right? These, you know, this is the whole, yes, they will have to look into the abyss, and of course they will pull back from the abyss and do the right thing. Right? Maybe that could work elsewhere in the world. Maybe it has worked elsewhere in the world, not in the Middle East. They look into the abyss and then they jump in with both feet. <laughs> right? And what we have seen consistently from them, and we saw this under Obama, we're now seeing it again under Trump, is that our allies become incredibly frightened as the United States pulls back. And rather than what we do what we would call the right thing, they do the worst thing. Right? They get more involved in conflict. Right? This was one of the ideas about Syria. And instead, Syria provoked interventions by you know, a half dozen different countries with all kinds of conflict among them including eventually sucking us in to the point where, you know, we're worried about getting into conflict with the Russians who are involved, right? Another thing that they did in this, make this point and the piece, and I've made it elsewhere, very explicitly, the Saudis and the Emiratis and some of the other Gulf states were begging the United States to confront the Iranians elsewhere in the region. The U.S. kept saying, no, 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 we won't. Moral hazard argument says, well, okay, then they'll make an agreement with the Iranians. They didn't make an agreement with the Iranians. They went and invaded Yemen, mm -hmm. right? The worst thing that we could possibly have imagined. And they did it very explicitly. They said, United States, if you are not going to push back on Iran as it expands across the region, we're going to have to do it ourselves. 
And we see Yemen as the most threatening place. And so that's where we're going to do it, right? And that was a disastrous intervention, right? And, you know, the Israelis saying the same thing, begging us to help them with what is going on in Syria, where Iran is establishing a massive military infrastructure aimed both at helping control Syria, but also at attacking Israel. And as a result, it has led to, most people aren't even aware of this, it has led to a war of attrition all across Syria with the Israelis routinely striking Iranian targets there, right? None of this is good. This is all greater and greater conflict. Now, you can say, well, it's low level, right? It certainly isn't a world war across the Middle East. Um, that's certainly true. But first of all, we've seen these kind of low level, these low level wars are very costly in their own right. They're damaging of politics, they're damaging of economies. Uh, over the course of time, you know, that can simply wear away at states. And beyond that, there is a very real danger that at some point this stuff escalates. Uh, you know, the Saudis and Emiratis intervene in Yemen, the Iranians uh, dramatically increase their intervention in Yemen, start giving their Houthi clients ballistic missiles, with the, which the Houthis start firing at Riyadh, the Saudi capital. Right? And we've just been fortunate that so far the Saudis have either been able to shoot down those missiles with you know, our patriots, mm-hmm. or where they've landed, they haven't really hurt anybody. Um, you know, Heaven knows what's going to happen if they hit a Saudi school. Right? What do the Saudis do under those circumstances? Um, okay, so let's. I think we've set up the predicates as best as a incompetent moderator like myself can. Um, let's talk about the 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention and what it tells us about where we are, um, which is how you sort of start your piece in foreign policy, which we'll put in the show notes and yada yada yada. Um, so first, this isn't as obscure as some viewers or some listeners, excuse me, um, might think it is, right? The 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention is part of the run-up to World War One. It's a critical element. It's what brings what we call the Triple Entente, or, you know, what ultimately comes the Allies. So it brings them together, right? And the point that I make in the piece is, you know, all through the 19th century, basically, you know, 1815. Uh, Napoleon is finally defeated. The British and the Russians are allies against Napoleon. Almost immediately afterwards, they fall out, and it begins this century-long competition between Britain and Russia all across the periphery of Eurasia, right? It's one of the most uh, bloody and uh, geostrategically dangerous competitions of the entire 19th century. The Russians and the British, both imperialist powers trying to expand their empires and secure their empires. And it leads to you know, any number of conflicts, the Crimean War, the, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, these two you know, crazy and you know, horrific British invasions of Afghanistan in 1839 and 1879. There are like a dozen Turkish Straits crises between Britain and Russia in there. And, you know, there's also uh, what, you know, now we look back almost nostalgically is this thing we call the great game, right? right. It's competition between Britain and Russia all across Central Asia, uh, parts of uh, uh, Southwest Asia, right? As a, we now look back on it with nostalgia and we have great movies like The Man Who Would Be King. At the time, this was deadly serious, mm-hmm. right? And it led to, again, lots of major military moves with lots of people getting killed as a result of it. 
1907, the British and the Russians bury the hatchet with this thing called the Anglo-Russian Convention. And the point that I make in the piece is, you know, look, if you were sitting uh, in Britain or Russia or, I don't know, Switzerland or someplace like that, you were, you'd heard about this, you'd be tempted to say, wow, this is awesome. Right? These two countries which have been fighting each other all across Eurasia for a hundred years, you know, killing huge numbers of people, they're finally putting this thing to bed, ending almost a century of conflict. That's great. And, and again, that's a true statement. The problem is that what brought the Russians and the British together was their mutual fear of Germany. Mm-hmm. Right, of Wilhelmine Germany, of this incredibly powerful and aggressive and dangerous German state, which was rising, and they are so frightened of Germany that they have to put aside their other differences. Right, and the problem there is a again, it's a product of the same forces that create World War One, but it also helps bring about World War I, and of course with it World War II, which is a follow-on conflict from World War I. So you know, what happens as a result of it? Well, the most important thing that happens as a result of it is that the British had been the biggest thing blocking the Russians in the Balkans. The mm-hmm. Balkans always had their designs in the Balkans. They come up with this cockamamie theory of pan-Slavism, right, which is just a, yet another form of imperialism. And it's the British who are constantly blocking them because they don't want the, the Russians to be able to take over Turkey and the, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. So right. they're all blocking warm water ports and all exactly. those problems. Yeah. Once we get the convention, the Russians are able to start throwing their weight around in the Balkans in a way that they couldn't, right? And one of the things that the Russians do is they back the Serbs, right? The Serbs have this insane terroristic regime. Now, again, you know, we can look at World War I and say everybody's to blame, nobody is blameless, right? But the Serbs are the ones who shoot the crown prince of Austria, right? and it's the Russians who back them up. Right? And the only reason the Russians can back them up is because the British are backing them up, no mm-hmm. longer opposing them. Right? And you know, again, who's right, who's wrong? Well, you know, we don't like people getting assassinated. What the Serbs did was outrageous. Um, you know, we can entirely, again, we don't have to like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but I think we can all understand that when the, the, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne is killed by the Serbian regime... It's a pretty natural reaction for the Austro-Hungarians to say, we're going to punish Serbia, right? right? In fact, it's exactly what we did to Afghanistan after 9-11, right? We get attacked, terrorist attack, we go and clobber the country where that came from. That's exactly what the Austrians are doing. What turns that into World War I is the insistence of the Russians that they're going to back Serbia, right? And that is only about pan-Slavism and the Russian imperial designs in the Balkans, which, as I said, is only made possible because of this, right? So it's not just that it's the rise of Germany that brings about this uh, this, this convention between the British and the, the Russians is burying in the hatch. It's that once having made the deal, the deal helps propel World War One, right? And that's, hold, can I hold on just one second? What are you doing? Please sit down. For listeners who can't see this, uh, uh, Ken's dog is trying to dig a hole in a chair in the background, which this podcast is particularly uh, indulgent of dog problems, so I wouldn't worry. (laughs) Uh, 
And so you- a couple of problems, uh, or not a couple of, a couple of questions or pushback. Um, yeah. First, uh, just for the record, because Remnant listeners have their bingo cards, um, I have to sort of at least point out that I kind of do have a soft spot for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and uh, as as far as as uh, morally illegitimate empires go, which basically they all are to one extent mm-hmm. or another, um, second only to the British Empire, I kind of have a thing for it because um, it produces the Austrian school and some really fantastic desserts and some really wonderful music. <laughs> and um, uh, and then there's, you know, and just sort of, it was where classical liberalism is kind of reborn in some ways, but we can have that conversation another time. Um, then the, uh, all right. So, but I take your point. Uh, but I mean, how hard do you want is, is, is the analogy here just simply a cautionary tale or is it a, is it a, is it a hard analogy or a soft analogy? Soft. Okay, so it's very much a soft one. So we don't have a a imperial Germany. Is 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 Iran the imperial Germany in this? Is China the imperial Germany in this? I mean, yeah, uh, that's that's exactly where I don't want to push it to, Joan. I mean, again, I think that the, the historical analogy is kind of a fun and interesting one to think about. And yes, uh, we all do have uh, uh, you know our our personal favorites in what happened before World War One. The point I'm making is simply the softer, wider one of mm-hmm. a peace agreement like the Anglo-Russian, exactly like what we're seeing now between the Israelis and the Emirates. It's easy to mistake that for something that is likely to bring peace because it is ending a century-old conflict. Mm-hmm. But what we have to do is we have to look at the geopolitical forces that are actually bringing it together. Right, And we need to recognize that those geopolitical forces that are bringing it together may actually be the start of a new major conflict or even a new century of conflict. As I say in the piece, you know, the Anglo-Russian Accord ended the great geostrategic conflict of the 19th century, but in so doing, it helped midwife the mm-hmm. great geostrategic conflict of the 20th century, right, which was all about Germany and its place in Europe. I fear. I am concerned. And I think that there are, is evidence that it may be the case that while the Emirati-Israeli agreement may be the end of the great Middle Eastern conflict of the 20th century, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Or at least a harbinger of it, right? I mean, it, it, exactly. it's like it hasn't been defined between the UAE and Israel. It's been defined between bigger players, right? Correct. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I actually use the word harbinger in the piece, right. right? But it may also be ultimately seen, you know, in retrospect, a hundred years from now, whoever is, is doing the remnant broadcast, the broadcast then, you know, maybe saying, you know, hey, we need to look at the uh, Israeli-Emirati agreement as being that harbinger of the conflict against Iran that consumed the Middle East for right. the next 40, 50, 100 years. At the same time, you are not arguing, or tell me if you are, that this is a reason not to be in favor of this agreement. Correct. You got it right. This is not a reason to be against this agreement, right? right. Ultimately, it is a beneficial thing, certainly in the short term. Whether it turns out to be good or bad in the longer term 
is unknown at this time. And you know, as I'm suggesting in the piece, and I've, I've written about uh, more clearly elsewhere, at a greater length elsewhere, there's a lot of stuff that could be done to avoid that bigger conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And I would hope that we would do it. Um, and one of the points I'm trying to make is, look, you know, what's pushing them together is this American disengagement from the region, which you know I fear is happening too fast and too completely and uh, too cavalierly. Right. And I think that a, a slower, more deliberate disengagement or just, you know, stepping back a little bit, not disengaging entirely. Right. And bringing in other countries that could help and build up other countries in the region and outside would be a way to avoid that conflict altogether. So um, it's funny. I mean, I think we talked about this the last time you were on. If you were to watch a random segment on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox about the Trump administration in the Middle East, uh, you would not hear a lot of people talking about the Trump administration's disengagement. Instead, you would hear a lot about Trump's relationship with the Saudi regime, um, about how he's so close to Netanyahu, um, you know, the sort of argument that Trump has made about his personal relationships seems to have persuaded people of the left and the right that that they are a substitute for deeper state-to-state relationships. But, um, you know, do the Saudis think, I mean, like, I think, again, we talked about this before, but just as a refresher, the, the, the Saudis don't think that these personal relationships between Trump and the crown prince or the whatever, the regent or whatever he's called these days, um, are a substitute for actual, an actual alliance, right? I mean, uh, explain, sort of talk about a little bit about how the various regimes actually view the relationship with the Trump administration. You got that exactly right, Jonah. So first, yeah, I'm always kind of, you know, somewhere between bemused to shocked to read, um, because I don't watch any of that, the, TV networks anymore, but to you know read in any of the the world's newspapers about how yeah Trump has this great relationship with the Saudis and Netanyahu. He's got you know he's got the the Gulf states wrapped around his. And this is nonsense, right? I don't know where this stuff comes from. Um, they're you know looking at at all the smoke and and assuming that not that there's fire, that there's I don't know cold fusion going on. Um, it's it's absolutely ridiculous, and it has no bearing in actual fact. And what you find in the region is deep, deep disappointment with the Trump administration among all of our allies. And and by the way, I just want to make clear, these are not allies who like the Obama administration either. They hated the Obama administration. They were very hopeful when Trump came into office. Um, And, you know, were there some things that Trump has done for them? Sure. Again, Netanyahu likes the support on issues like uh, annexation. Uh, The Saudis do like the fact that the Trump administration has tried to be helpful to them with regard to the assassinate, to the killing, the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi, right? Arms sales, right? I mean, we've done that. Yeah, that's fine. That's all good. But at the end of the day, you know, the relationship for them is ultimately about security. It's ultimately about defense. And Trump, you know, talks a great game and does nothing. The Israelis have been asking for our help on Syria. We don't provide it, right? That is a huge problem for them in terms of their security. As I said, the Gulf states are just absolutely apoplectic 
that Trump is refusing to uh, continue 40 years of American policy and defend their you know, oil exports against, Iran, against blatant Iranian attack. Those are the things that matter for them. And you know, I have heard from the lips of some of the sen- senior most leaders in these countries just how angry and frightened they feel, how they feel betrayed by you know Donald Trump and his administration, right? And you know, one of the really th- dangerous things that's going on out there is you know they see this as a trend. I don't, right? Um, you know, it may become one, but you know, Obama did what he did, and it was very much against the kind of traditional establishment view of what the U.S. should be doing. You know, let's remember, had Hillary Clinton followed him in office, and she did win the popular vote, so Mm -hmm. it's clearly that it's not that the American people disliked what she was saying. She would have moved things back in that more traditional direction. Donald Trump comes into office, and he, you know, continues that particular trend. Right, which I think is much more about you know, his personality and Obama's, as I said, it may become a trend in the U.S., but that's how they see it. Right? Mm-hmm. The Gulf states, the Israelis, believe that the United States you know, is, is experiencing kind of an epochal change in its thinking about the Middle East and is disengaging. And they're both now trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with our security problems in the Middle East absent the United States? Yeah. Right, and they're coming up with different answers. For the Israelis, it's thing like things like annexing the territory to protect ourselves. For the Emirates, the Saudis, it's yeah, we got to get deeper in bed with the Israelis. But it's also things like we need to have a nuclear program because if the Americans aren't here and the Iranians may have a nuclear program, we're going to need to match them. Right. Um, you know, when you're talking about the hearing things from the lips of various, you know. Uh, Arab regime leaders and members uh, and how irritated and frustrated they are. It does seem to me that one factor that we, you know, we can't completely discount is particularly in sort of Middle Eastern climate that they might just simply be dehydrated and that can make you very cranky, which is why I want to talk to you about liquid IV. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm joking, you know, to some extent, of course, but you know, it is a hot climate in the Middle East and it's a hot climate uh, right now, still for a while in the U S and um, dehydration uh, is a real thing. It's a real thing. If you work out a lot, which I hear rumors that some people do. Um, it's also a real thing. If you um, are just getting to a certain age and you know, you, your body needs to stay, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling not to use the word moist, <laughs> but stay hydrated is really important. As I, as I, I think I mentioned recently on this um, rafting trip I did, the head, uh, head guide was like, look, doesn't matter what, you, what complaint you come to us with short of breaking a bone, we're going to say, have you been drinking water? Because dehydration can hit you in all sorts of different ways. Um, and believe it or not, dehydration occurs daily in three out of four people. With liquid IV, you have the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Each serving helps you get as much hydration as two to three bottles of water, containing five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Healthier than sugary sports drinks, no artificial flavors or preservatives, and less sugar than an apple. Made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. So, Liquid IV is available nationwide at Costco and Target. Or you can get 25% off when you go to 
liquidiv.com and use the promo code DINGO at checkout. That's liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO. 25% off anything you order when you use promo code DINGO at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. We thank Liquid IV for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so uh, uh, I want to sort of draw, go, go bigger picture here for the time we got left. And um, um, one of the things I like about the 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention um, analogy, which again stipulated as a soft analogy, is that this is sort of a theme I've talked about a bunch on this podcast over the years and I've written about a bunch. One of the things I'm kind of fascinated by is we all know, just as a matter of, we don't have to have seen Back to the Future, uh, we all know that things that happened in the past influence the future, just the way the president, present has influenced the future and all this kind of stuff. What fascinates me is how things in the present change the past. And what I mean by that is that, you know, for most of our lives, the most significant event, the most significant date of the 20th century was 1917, right? The, the whether it's World War One or the Bolshevik Revolution, you know that kind of thing, and um, or 1945, you know that guy, yeah. And then uh, the Cold War ends, and then 9/11 happens, and all of a sudden, at least arguably, it seemed at the time that what 1922, when the Wahhabis take over Saudi Arabia, or I think that was the date, you know, I'm doing this remember, but whatever that date was, all of a sudden that date, which had basically been forgotten or unknown to even a lot of public intellectuals, um, all of a sudden became like this much more significant date than it had been. And um, and the reason I bring it up is that I think there are always there are these trends that go on um, that are important, but because they don't fit the narrative of the current moment, we don't pay attention to. And then when they ripen and become major, you know, inflection points where all of a sudden we see illuminated, oh my God, that stuff was really important that we weren't paying attention to. And, you know, you can do this in domestic politics too. I mean, Pat Buchanan's run in 1992, uh, in retrospect, really was in many ways a harbinger of Trumpism and a lot of his nationalism stuff and, 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 and all the rest. And so, um, I think you're probably right. Even if the 1907 analogy can't become hard, um, that there are all sorts of things in our, that happened 50, a hundred years ago that we think are sort of trivial. No, we don't need to know that for the test, but in, <laughs> in five years from now, that may be the only stuff that we need to know for the test. Right. Um, so anyway, I mean, like, like when you look back on the last century or last half century or whatever, pick your own time frame. what are some of the dates that, you know, you think are going to shrink or grow in significance, um, you know, as we move forward. Sure. Um, so I mean, first, I, I love that point because I completely agree with you. I, you know, I teach, uh, I teach a number of different courses. Um, and one of the reasons I do that is because it forces me every year to, to go through that exercise, right? right? And to rethink, okay, what was important about the history? What do I now see as being more important than less? And, you know, one of the interesting things to me is, you know, having been teaching for almost 20 years now, 
you know, looking back early on at the kind of dates and moments that I thought were important back then and how I teach the same material now, right? And emphasize other things. So, you know, just as one example of what you're asking, 1979 is a huge year in the Middle East, right. enormous year, or has been at least since 1979. Um, but it used to be that there were other things about 1979 that were the things that loomed larger. So as I said, you had the signing of the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty in 1979. You know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, obviously that was huge. It was right. earth shattering. Now, you know, it's still important. You still teach it, not as critically important. You know, the one that's persisted, obviously, uh, the Orion Revolution the fall of the shot that has persisted but you know another one that kind of i think is really magnified in that or actually i'll, I'll give you two other things that happened in 79 that have, have loomed much larger one saddam hussein becomes the full president of iraq in mm -hmm. 1979 right which becomes huge for the united states because we wind up fighting multiple wars against the guy right and wars that have now helped to transform our own domestic politics in certain right. ways Right. So that seems much bigger in retrospect. But another one, which, you know, at the time, most people weren't paying a lot of attention to. I think most people today still don't recognize 1979, a group of nuts led by this guy, Juhayman and Aloteba, sees the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Right. Right. And they do it. They're inspired by the Iranian Revolution. It's a very big deal. Juhayman Aloteba is the intellectual godfather of Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. right? And bin Laden and Zawahri and the others point to the seizure, seizure of the Grand Mosque as being this defining moment in their lives, right, as showing them the path that they're going to take. So again, something that at the time, kind of interesting, kind of bizarre, no one really knew what to make of it. In later years, you know, most people wouldn't really talk about it too much because it didn't seem to be terribly meaningful. After 9-11, boy, that looks really, really important. Wasn't the seizure of the Grand Mosque, um, and I could just be misremembering this, but wasn't one of the things that made that significant that even though the Saudi regime crushed it, and you know, uh, pretty brutally, if I recall, um, um, but wasn't part of the reason why it was so significant was that afterwards, basically, the royal family decided we got to co-opt the Wahhabists or the Salafists or the extremists, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's how you start getting these sort of the funding of this extremism stuff from the regime as a process of co-optation that ends up sort of biting them in the ass. Is that right? I yes, okay. absolutely. That is, you're absolutely right, Jonah. Um, I would argue that that starts before then. It's been going on for a while, but you're absolutely right that, you know, there is a step level increase uh -huh. after that incident. Um, and, you know, exactly as you point out, it causes uh, the regime to be willing to kind of help send these guys abroad, right? So bin Laden goes off to Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. With the, you know, blessing of the, the Saudi royal family, because they want to get him out of the country. But obviously, that also becomes hugely important in the development of Al Qaeda. Another, you know, hugely important thing is they, they more or less turn over education, to the religious establishment, mm -hmm. right? So these extremely, I'm going to be kind here and say extremely traditional <laughs> Saudi clerics get control over the Saudi educational system, 
Yeah. Right. And it, it produces, you know, so much of the kind of backwardness and, you know, lack of productivity among yeah. the Saudi populace that the Saudis are wrestling with right now. Yeah. I mean, imagine if, I mean, just for, and I stipulated there are, there are, this analogy has weak points, but imagine if in Israel, uh, in a deal, uh, they gave the education establishment to the ultra Orthodox. Exactly. Um, you would not have these kids doing, you would not have startup nation. Exactly. If, if that had happened. Um, exactly. I'd also just point out, you know, since we're talking about this, um, I mean, it's a, it's probably a little too forced as a contrafactual, but the argument that Jimmy Carter doesn't get reelected if not for the Iranian revolution is not trivial. I mean, I, I, it's still possible Reagan would have won, maybe even probable, but Ray, but if Carter had handled that really well, uh, odds are that he would add better prospects. And imagine how much our politics would be different if Reagan is not elected in 1980 because he probably wouldn't have been elected in 1984 either. And then you just have it completely, you know, it's sort of, it becomes a Ray Bradbury, you know, short story That's about right. <laughs> killing a butterfly during the Jurassic period or something. Right. But I, I completely agree with you. And it's not just, I agree with you that Carter's handling of the crisis and the revolution are very poor. It's also that the, uh, the, the revolution, you know, helps precipitate the economic uh, recession in the country, right. which, you know, I think most political scientists tend to point to that as being the more important reason for Reagan's election. Mm -hmm. But again, they're tied together, right? No Iranian revolution. You may not have the, the economic recession. Um, so the classes you teach, are they poli-sci classes or are they history classes? They're a mixture of both, right? They're, they're taught in most, well, most of the classes I teach are in the security studies program at Georgetown University. But yeah, my classes are always a mixture of history and, and political science, if you well, want to the, the, the reason I ask is that, you know, I used to follow this kind of stuff on, in academia, on campus stuff more closely than I do um, these days. But for a long time, really when I was in college, you know, the, the tide had turned completely against great, what they would call great man theory, right. history, right, where the individual leaders, you know, particularly white, male, cisgender, blah, blah, blah. And it was this emphasis instead on social history and all that. And I, I like social history. I think there's a lot yeah. to be said for social history. But in this conversation just now, the idea that individual actors don't play a role, maybe in an unintended role, you know, I mean, I, I, the idea of, you know, Shaping the future the way you want to, I think, is folly. But a world without where Khomeini or Carter or Reagan or, um, you know, who or later Osama bin Laden or whatever, you know, like the individual personalities seem to me really do matter. And social history can tell you a lot, but it can't tell you everything about the contingent, just the weird contingency of history. We were talking before about significant dates. You know, if whoever, I don't know who was responsible for the decision, I guess the Kaiser ultimately, for sending Lenin to Finland Station. But if you didn't have Lenin, or if you didn't have the decision to send him there, history is going to look different, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, you know, I, I mostly don't do academic work. I mostly think of myself as a policy guy. I spent a dozen years in the U.S. government. Um, but I have written some academic pieces. And I think one of my most cited academic pieces is a piece I wrote 
almost 20 years ago with my friend Dan Byman, which was called Let Us Now Praise Great Men. And the whole point of it was that, you know, political science, you know, really falls down because it won't consider the role of individuals. And by the way, just last year, Foreign Affairs asked us to kind of reprise that article. No, really. I had no idea about any of this when I brought this up. That's interesting. So I think in December, you know, Foreign Affairs published a piece called Beyond Great Forces, in Uh which we more or less took that piece and said, you know, look at what's going on in the world today. Right. There are a lot of huge kind of, you know, grand forces at work, right? The end of the industrial age, the beginning of the information revolution, um, you know, uh, religious fanaticism in a, a whole variety of different places, you know, reactions to democracy and democracy. You know, there are all these great trends going on out there. But then we pointed to all of these different leaders, right, who are in some cases you know, riding the wave. In other cases, they are steering it, right, making critical decisions, whether it's, you know, Erdogan in Turkey or Mohammed bin Salman um, or, you know, Xi Jinping in China, right? You know, these are people who are making decisions, right? And you can say that, you know, in some cases there were these big forces behind them, but they're making critical calls about which direction to move it, right? And in, in a number of these cases, you know, Khamenei in Iran, we point out that, look, they're actually sitting at the nexus of multiple huge forces out there that are pushing in different directions. And they're the ones, you know, we, we compare them to like the signalmen on a railroad, mm-hmm. right? Who, you know, yeah, you got multiple trains barreling down the track and you've only got so many tracks, but you get to decide, you know, which way the track runs, right? And, and that is hugely important. So, you know, Was there revolutionary ferment in Russia before uh, Lenin showed up? Yeah, there absolutely was. I mean, and let's remember, the initial revolution is made without Lenin. Right. But it's Lenin who then hijacks, and every revolution gets hijacked, right? Every revolution gets hijacked. Lenin hijacks the Russian revolution, and he steers it into communism, into the Soviet Union. And yeah, had it not been, and you know, the Kaiser ultimately makes the decision, but you know, it's Ludendorff, it's Hindenburg, it's a lot of German generals mostly, and right. Holweg and others who decide, you know what, we got to do this because it's the only way to knock Russia out of the war, right, so that we can beat the British and French before the Americans come in. And you know, those are huge, monumental decisions made by individuals that didn't have to be made the way that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So last question. Um, and we talked about this a little before we started recording. I, I was going to ask you to sort of explain to me the difference between all of these different foreign policy magazines, because just as a I feel I've lost my my nerd uh, cred for not being able to tell you the minute differences between the different foreign policy <coughs> journals. And for understandable reasons, you kind of demurred. Um, but it does raise a sort of larger, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm confused about this is I'm generally confused about foreign policy these days. Not what I think about what our foreign policy should be per se, but I grew up, there were like serious foreign policy schools of thought. And I mean, I remember, I think it was Mort Kondracki had this great, it was in my poli-sci, I had read it actually in the magazine, but it was in my intro to poli-sci class where it, it ran through the, the, Neo-interventionists, the interventionists, the neo sort of all of these different schools, the realists, the isolationists, blah, 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 blah. And 
I can't, and with a few exceptions, I mean, like you're kind of one, I kind of know where you come from on all these kinds of things. But for the most part, I can't, I need, I, 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 it's not just that I don't have a field guide to what the different schools of thought are. I don't feel like there are these hard distinctions between the schools of thought anymore. What is the, just sort of the, the, the general state of affairs in the foreign policy world? Is it just essentially adhocracy that gets sort of reifies and theoritized, you know, after the fact, or is, are there actual serious schools out there? Interesting question. So um, things are pretty messy right now. Um, and even that's being a little euphemistic. Uh -huh. um, actually, to, to kind of, you know, really use a lot of British understatement, uh, the field is in flux, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, you know, look, you can see this before he died. Uh, my old boss, Sandy Berger, uh, was the uh, national security advisor when I was my second time on uh, the, the White House NSC staff. Um, before he died, Sandy was saying, you know, I don't know why everybody is talking about polarization, because what I'm seeing out there is that, you know, the Democrats and Republicans are absolutely on in lockstep. Right. They're just in lockstep in two completely different camps. Mm -hmm. right? So at the, you know, the, the populous end of the Republican Party, the far left of the Democratic Party are more or less coming together around retrenchment. And the center of you know, the centrists in both the Democratic and Republican are moderate Republicans, centrist or conservative Democrats, to the extent those exist anymore. They're still internationalists. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where the, the main differences lie. And, you know, there are a lot of debates right now, both in the academic and in the, the policy uh, journals and, and fora, uh, where people are debating between kind of different American grand strategies, primacy, you know, the United States should continue to dominate the world at one end, um, what gets called restraint, which is basically retreating very much from a lot of the world, uh, disengaging to a great extent from a lot of the world. Um, the nasty term used about them is neo-isolationism. They reject that term, uh, but it is very much about disengaging. And then, you know, in the center, kind of old school, older school internationalists who believe in varying degrees of engagement, right? And that's all still very much getting sorted out, right? And as you were pointing out, as I was pointing out, it's cutting across party lines, mm -hmm. right? And that's really creating a lot of issues in the foreign policy world. Now, to some extent, it doesn't matter a whole lot because American domestic politics are still primarily driven by American domestic politics and economics, mm -hmm. right? And foreign policy is a distant third, right? And it takes some huge event like 9-11 to put foreign policy really firmly back in the on the agenda. So <clears throat> the fact that the, the the differing schools, if we want to call them that, on foreign policy now kind of span in these messy ways, the political parties, doesn't matter all that much. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you remember my point earlier about how, you know, Obama was, you know, he was very much in kind of the restraint school. And Trump in his own weird way is too, although he's got elements of primacy sprinkled in there in ways that don't make a whole lot of sense to most people, right? You know, that's mostly about the fact that, you know, what's really driving them, what's putting them in office is domestic politics and economics, mm -hmm. right? They're not getting put into office because of their foreign policy. And so you can have these kind of inconsistencies between 
foreign policy thinking and political parties because foreign policy just isn't as important right now. That may change at some point in time if we have some major foreign policy crisis, right? And that may force things to get sorted out with, you know, one camp moving into one party and another camp moving into another. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably right. My my bigger hunch, just for my two cents, is that to the extent the foreign policy stuff gets sorted out, I think we are in the middle of a pretty serious domestic political realignment that is masked in part because the parties themselves are going to keep their names. They're just changing their coalitions. And um, it's sort of like if very quietly McDonald starts becoming a seafood restaurant and it takes a while to notice because it's still got the golden arches and all the rest. But, uh, and I think that that it will flow from that. And also, I mean, I guess I'd like curious your take on this. I've been writing for a while now that, and I know this is a little outside of your um, focus, but the debate is pretty much settled that we are in for an era, particularly on the right, but I think across the board, um, of hawkishness towards China. So the question isn't whether we're going to be hawkish or not hawkish, um, but whether we're going to be smart or dumb about it. And, um, and one, do you agree with that? And two, what, what do you think smart hawkishness towards China looks like that you would like to see, regardless if it's a Republican or a Democratic, you know, government? What, what, yeah, I, it's very easy to come yeah. up with what dumb looks like, but like, right. what does smart look like? Sure. Um, so I think it's a reasonable question to ask, but let me caveat my answer up front by saying, as you point out, you know, I'm, I'm just a dumb Middle East guy, right? But that said, I am someone who you know, has been working in foreign policy, in the government, out of it for 32 years. Um, I certainly know a lot of international history. Um, so you know, I have some basis for saying a few things. Uh, do I think that there is going to be you know, hawkishness toward China for a while? Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, I've been saying nasty things about Donald Trump throughout this whole podcast. You know, let me say something reasonably nice about him, which is that, you know, I think that, you know, he did something that everyone does recognize was necessary, which was to kind of call the Chinese on the carpet for a lot of the stuff that they've been doing, mm-hmm. right? And to point out that, you know, the, you know, the vast array of unfair trading practices and other stuff that they, you know, do just can't be, we just can't continue to ignore it. Now, again, you can agree or disagree with the specific tactics that he's employed, but I think that's exactly what you're getting at when people are saying, you know what, everyone, certainly on the right, but I think Democrats too, are increasingly saying, you know what, we can't just give China the free pass that we once did, right? And then the question becomes, okay, fine, so what does it mean to be more hawkish on China? And there, what gets me nervous is this notion, you know, I hear, I spend a lot of time with the U.S. military, and certainly the U.S. military has a perspective, and I think that there are lots of other folks on the right, too, that war with China is inevitable, mm-hmm. right? And it's just a matter of when it happens and how well prepared we are to actually win it. Um, I'm not convinced it's inevitable. I, I do not believe that there's anything that has ever happened historically that was inevitable, right? I think that, you know, history is incredibly contingent. Um, and, you know, in particular, what I worry about is, you know, these things like the South China Sea, right? Um, 
you know, are we going to start a massive war with China over, you know, something that, you know, Scarborough Reef, you know, something that hopes that when it grows up, it will be an islet, right? right. It ain't even an island, right? This is, you know, th- these are uninhabitable little rocks or pieces of coral with which the Chinese are building up to, right? And, you know, you do very much get this problem of goal displacement, right? Which I've seen in the Middle East and seen in Europe as well, where it's kind of a, well, we want to preserve our alliances. And okay, well, you know, our allies are nervous about Scarborough Reef, you know, so then we have to go to war with China over Scarborough Reef. That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, the Senkakus, the Spratleys, the Paracels, they are not worth a war, right? And, you know, about Taiwan. Taiwan is, you know, and you're right, Richard Hostia, I guess, just wrote a piece about it. Um, you know, Taiwan is a tougher one, no question about it. Taiwan is a, you know, is a nation, it is a going nation, um, you know. It is big. It is important. Um, I just sold the Chinese language rights to Suicide of the West in Taiwan. So we, we got to protect that. Yes, I, I am much more amenable to the idea that the United States should be protecting Taiwan. Right. And both for Taiwan. Right. That's that's kind of the point I'm making here is both mm-hmm. for Taiwan and because of the potential impact that it has on our allies. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also don't you know, I get very, very unhappy about the kind of bootstrapping argument that, well, to protect Taiwan, we have to enforce, you know, claims in some of these islets and some of these other places. And in particular, I think that there are other ways to handle them. Again, one of the things that concerns me as someone who started out life as a, as a military analyst and still does a lot of military stuff, you know, is this notion that the only way to defeat the Chinese is being able to project tremendous power into China itself, right? In particular, you know, one of the things that I see going on in the military world is, you know, this, this development of technologies that look increasingly defense dominant, right? It's increasingly easier to defend, especially at sea and in the air, right? The the new anti-ship missiles, the new anti-aircraft missiles, the new surface air missiles, they're incredibly capable, right? And so what that suggests is that there ought to be really, you know, smart defensive ways of protecting Taiwan and ensuring its uh, independence, shall we say, uh, I don't know if that's the right term. Again, I'm just a dumb Middle East guy, so don't <laughs> ding me on this one. But preventing the Chinese from reuniting it by force, right. Right? rather than projecting power into China, which of course creates a security dilemma. Right? The Chinese worry that if we have the capacity to project significant power into China, that we will use it to do things other than simply to protect our allies. Right? right? And that's where you can get into some very dangerous circumstances. So again. I think that the the turn toward hawkishness on China is both understandable and probably right at some level, but I very much worry about where people seem to want to take it to, mm-hmm. right? And that's what gets me very disconcerted and where I'd really like to see, you know, people coming to their senses and saying, you know, look, if we can prevent the Chinese from creating facts on the ground, right, as the Israelis used to say, or creating facts on the water, in this case, in the South China Sea, that's great. But even if we can't, that's not a rationale for a major war with China, right? And these these kind of reputational arguments can get very dangerous. All right. On that cheery note, 
uh, <laughs> Ken, Ken Pollock. Thanks so much for, for joining us. My pleasure, Jonah. Always glad to be with you. Always love the fact that you pull me out of my comfort zone <laughs> and make me think about things that I don't normally think about. One of the best things about your podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. So Ken has left the building, as it were. Um, always good to have him on. I got to look up whether this was his third visit or not. And if it is, of course, he gets um, you know the, the first of many prizes for return guests. Um, always good to have him on. I think He's one of the easiest guys to talk to out there about complicated things, and he just knows a lot of stuff. He knows the theory, but he also knows the people out there. Um, and uh, I don't really have anything else to add, except it's really good to be back. Well, good to be back. It's good to be back with you guys. It's good to be back doing normal podcasts. Um, I'm not sure it's actually good to be back in the sense of um, Washington, D.C., still feels like a giant fat man's uh, sweatpant fog, and I hate it. Um, and I hate having to dive back into politics as robustly as I have to. Um, but beyond that, uh, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for later this week where I will address my just unforgivably dumb, road-fatigued, uh, uh, demented uh, screwing up of the era of good feelings, which I'll explain at another time. And until then... I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.